Good morning, everyone. Today's reading and preaching, everyone. Let's go ahead and take our seats, please. Or actually, just return to your sheets. Um, we will start by reading the scripture for today, which will be Psalm 1. If you do not have a Bible, please raise your hand and an usher will bring one to you. That is Sojourn's gift to you. If you do not have a Bible, please feel free to keep that. And please stand as we read Psalm 1 together. I will start in Spanish and then I will go to English. Dichosos el hombre que no sigue el consejo de los malvados, ni se detiene en la salida de los pecadores, ni cultiva la amistad de los blasfemos, sino que en la ley del Señor se deleita, y día y noche medita en ella. Es como el árbol plantado a lo, la orilla de un río, que cuando llega el tiempo da fruta y sus hojas jamás se marchitan. Todo cuanto hace prospera. En cambio, los malvados son como paja arrastrado por el viento. Por eso no se sostendrá las, los malvados en el juicio, ni los pecadores en la asamblea de los justos. Porque el Señor cuida el camino de los justos, mas la senda de los malos lleva a la perdición. Psalm 1. <laughs> Praise be to God. Blessed is the man whose walks, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in, seed in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked, the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God. Well, as Brian or Tom said, my name's Eric, one of the members here. Excited to be back with you guys this morning. My family was away for five or six weeks on vacation and work travel. Um, this is like our second or third week back, and we missed you guys. Like, it is really good to be with the spiritual family, and excited now as the GMU students come back. You get to be part of the family, too. So welcome back. Welcome back, JP. I know you probably have experienced that to a greater degree. So it is awesome to have you guys not just here and there in our lives, in our relationships again, but consistently. So good to have you guys back. So this, ironically enough, is the last week that we're going to be in the Psalms specifically. So it's been an awesome journey. And then also, ironically, we're actually going to start with the first Psalm. So the first Psalm sets the stage for the rest of the Psalms. So that as the reader looks at that first Psalm and understands it, then he looks with that framework or that vision through the rest of the Psalms within the book. And it reminds me, we're going to see two contrasting paths, and it reminds me of a poem by a guy named Robert Frost. So let me read it to you. I may try to get a little uh, 
rhythmatic up here in my reading. Sometimes it helps me get into the text. So two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing bear had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trod in black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Robert Frost. You see a man careening his neck out to figure out which path is going to be best for him to take. He wants to take both, but he can't. He has to choose one. Similarly, in this psalm, we see two diverging paths. You cannot take both. The end result is very, very different. And the chosen path makes all the difference. Yes, the dilemma at the outset is the same. Which is best and which brings the greatest happiness? And that's the way David initiates this psalm. He says and uses the term blessed. So I want to focus in on that term blessed just for a few minutes first, because I think we cannot fully understand what he's getting at in the original Hebrew text. Sometimes we even just say, I'm blessed to make it out of bed in the morning. Have you guys ever said that? Yeah, I know I have a time or two. But really, in the original Hebrew text, the author is getting at the amazing state of bliss that is available through God supreme happiness and joy. But we need to calibrate our understanding of happiness because that too can drift in our culture. So our misunderstanding of happiness is that we equate happiness with pleasure and we think we're trying to get that pleasure from going from experience to experience or substance to substance. And we think this feels good. I want to get more. And when we want to get too much, it leads actually to addiction. So maybe some examples that are potentially obvious would be like drugs or alcohol. Others that may not be so obvious could be performance at work, performance at school, maybe getting enough sleep, though I would imagine most of you are not finding sleep as an idol in the sense that you're pursuing that pleasure and you want more and you're getting too much of it, and so you're addicted. But there are many things that can draw us that promise happiness. The historical understanding of happiness, however, is that it's from character and contentment. So we think this feels really good, and I am completely satisfied. Satisfied fully and completely. Now this pursuit of happiness to be fully satisfied completely is a universal longing within all human hearts. So what do we see in our society? We pursue happiness through experiences, circumstances, relationships, money, reputation, we have a government that's organized around life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. My question would be, is it working? Is it really paying off? Just one statistic, 65% of Americans are on antidepressants. 65%. Now, I'm sure there is, and I understand there is, a clinical reason for antidepressant medication. But 65%, I find it hard to believe that that many people are clinically depressed. We live with a low-grade anxiety and a chronic depression that acclimates as the new normal. 
and even our view of Jesus is somber and a sad person, which isn't necessarily true biblically. So we're missing the gap. If God wants supreme blessedness for his people, it seems as we look at our culture and what it promises, we're missing the gap. Yet blessedness and supreme happiness is what initiates this book in the Psalms. And it's purposeful. It's the desire of God for all people to be truly blessed, which is why this longing truly is universal. So does that sound surprising? When I say God wants you to be truly blessed, do you think, yeah, kind of? I mean, this is God, and I know that I'm really messed up on the inside, and I really don't deserve anything. I really don't deserve to be truly blessed and truly satisfied in him. And honestly, I struggle with this same thing believing that God wants me to be truly happy and blessed. But as we'll see this morning, it truly is true, but it might not be what you think as far as the process to get there. So Psalm 1, like I said, is a book of contrasts, a teaching tool to explain and illustrate two paths. So we'll get one path, two paths. One path is truly blessed now in eternity. The second path, the blessedness is now fragile or temporary at best, and it will be revealed fully at judgment. And along these paths, we're going to see two or three truths. One, the work that man does, which would be us. Two, the result of what we do, both in an earthly and a heavenly framework. And three, the work that God does. So let's jump in to verse one, the work that man does. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So these three exhortations of what not to do, what the blessed man is not to do, are very similar in the original language. Essentially means they don't immerse themselves, find their abode, stand firm together in the opinions, the ideas, and the delights of the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. And we see a little bit of progression when we see what the subject is pursuing in counsel, and then in walking the same paths, and then in dwelling in the same house, which is what means to sit at the seat of. So we do see a progression through what they're pursuing. And the warning is that the heart leans in the direction of the wicked eventually ends up abiding with them. So think of maybe like your timesheet at work, or think of a college exam you might have. Should you cheat on those exams? And what things might go through your head that would lean you towards cheating on those things? Maybe it's just once. Maybe I've worked really hard. Like the intensity of the work I've put out, even though it was only 38 hours, it was really a 40-hour effort. No one will really know. I mean, I fill my timesheet out and get stamped by my supervisor. I turn my test in, and nobody really pays attention to where the answers came from. If I don't cheat, if I don't change my time card, I'll fail. I won't be able to keep up. I won't get a good job. I'll fail in life. No one will like me anymore. And it can spool on and on and up and up. Oswald Chambers describes sin in this way. He said, remember what sin is a fundamental independence of God. The thing in me that says, I can do without God. I don't need him. The prophet Jeremiah defines it similar in chapter 17, where he says, thus says the Lord, cursed or anathema or cut off is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So this is what is fundamentally at the heart of the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. And at the root, it is not something you do, but it is the posture of your heart before God. So then what does this mean 
What does this not mean? I'm sorry, what does this not mean for the blessed man? It does not mean that you aren't ever around the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. Jesus himself was known for sitting and dwelling and dining with sinners and tax collectors. It also does not mean that bad company corrupts good character. Though the principle is true, the root of the badness is not only outside yourself and the wicked sinners and scoffers, but it is inside yourself, and you can't get away from yourself. So that's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? And we see that contrast that helps us define that in verse 2, where he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Again, delight. Man, let's focus on that, because what you get when you have trusted Christ is you get a heart transplant. Your delight is different. Luke chapter 6, it says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. So let's take a little closer look at the word delight. And there's an important grammar distinction, so let me nerd out just for a second. College students, you know, this is like your precursor before you get back to English class. So the word delight is a noun, right, in this particular psalm. And in this noun, essentially it's saying this is what defines you. What you delight in defines you. Another way to say it is man does what he delights in because it is his nature. This profound observation hit me as I was reading this book to my two-year-old this week. So I want to read it to you guys. The chick tries to strut. The rooster struts. The duck waddles, the goose waggles, the ant crawls, the bear shuffles, the giraffe runs, the fish swims, the worm wiggles, the monkey swings, the mother kangaroo hops, the baby kangaroo rides, the eagle soars, the frog leaps, the fly flies, the sloth hardly moves at all. These creatures behave this way because they were created by God to behave that way. That is their nature. So that's the noun delight. However, when we look at Psalm 37 that we saw a couple weeks ago, delight is a verb or a command to delight yourself in the Lord. So what you delight in is defined not by how you feel, but by what you do. So this verb delight and the noun delight are inextricably bound together. You do what you delight to do, and you intentionally pursue what you delight in. We're driven by delight. In other words, If you delight in something, you will persevere and fight for it. Yet as Christians in this world, we realize that we have a conflicted nature on the battlefield of our hearts. We have a desire to do what is good and right and yields that delight. At the same time, we have a desire to shortcut true delight by turning to temporary pleasure. We have a heart of flesh that delights in God, and it's wrapped in the flesh that has fallen. We have an all-powerful, all-loving, and all-knowing God, and yet at the same time, God allows our enemy, Satan, to bend his will towards our destruction and God's defamation. But our enemy won't have the victory in our lives in eternity. We know that in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this heart battlefield, that God uses all things for our good and for his glory. And he uses all these things to reshape the overall condition of our hearts to be full of joy and thanksgiving, to be truly blessed. Know this. Central to Jesus' work is making, making each of us into a truly joyful person. Hmm. Not necessarily the Joel Osteen idea of truly joyful person, but a truly joyful person. And we'll see why later on this morning.
Now, the object of the delight in this verse that David is talking about is the law of God. So in our terminology, we would say like we delight in God through his revealed word or in the Bible. And blessedness is found in pursuing God through the intake and response to his word and his spirit, which is our active involvement driven by our new hearts. Again, hearts being defined as your mind, your will, and your emotion. So that new affection, that transplanted heart that he has given to you. Oswald Chambers, again, puts it this way. Desire is what you determined in your mind and settle in your heart and set yourself towards as good. And that is the thing God will fulfill if you delight in him. That is the condition. So some questions to ask yourself, ask God to help you understand is, that kind of gets to the details of our heart and delight, how much time do we spend blank? Could be working on your house. Could be pursuing a career. Could be time with your favorite friends. Could be video games. Could be reading books. How much time do we spend in those things? And what does that reveal about our delight? What have we bought into that promises delight? Maybe it's going to the gym five hours a day and are pursuing that delight what that promises to us. But does it comprehensively deliver? Who are your heroes? Who are your counselors? What do you aspire to? A few weeks ago, I started running in the mornings, early mornings, which was very miserable. But what I found over time is I had to figure out, okay, I'm, I'm getting some payback. I mean, I feel better. But the morning was my quiet time and place before God every day. It's like, so well, I can just run a few days a week and quiet time before God a few days a week, and I'll be just fine. But what I found out was that it was sapping that joy and delighting God. So now you might see a little extra tire around my middle eventually. But no, really, I'm just going to try to find another time and place that's not going to rob me of that juicy, wonderful, delightful quiet, which is not often true in our home, but quiet time before the world and everything else hits me. So we have to make those decisions, and we need God to help us discern our hearts. So let's focus now on meditate. So we've talked about delight. Now let's hit meditate. What in the world does that mean? Because it can carry a lot of connotations. So it does not mean that you're a recluse in a closet with your Bible all the time. That is not what it means. I, I would say probably most of you don't struggle with that. It does not mean that you ignore other responsibilities to spend time with Jesus. Spend a time with Jesus. I've done that a few times in the past. Uh, it does not mean emptying your mind of everything. But what it does mean, amen, Ian. But what it does mean is that you're filling your mind with something like a cow chews a cud. So how often when you look at cows do you see them not chewing? Never. Like they're always chewing, chewing, chewing. And I won't go into their digestive cycles of why that is. But they constantly chew. So Meditating is filling your mind day and night, continuously thinking, processing, seeking to understand. So specifically with the law of the Lord then, or the Bible, how do you meditate? So as a hand fa has five fingers, there are five basic aspects or activities that feed the heart, meditating on God and his word. Threaded through it, each activity is a prayerful response, and practicing each gives you a better grasp on his word and allows God to, you yield to God that desire and influence of him in your life and in your heart. And some of you may have heard these before. 
But listen, that's the first one, listen like sermons or good music or podcasts. Read like community Bible reading, that devotional reading within the Word of God. Study, study deeply and thoroughly. Memorize the Word of God, getting the Word of God in your heart and your mind without needing it in front of your eyes, and then taking all those four sources and meditating on it to get that good grip on the Word of God. We can usually grasp and understand and apply listening and reading pretty well, though honestly, the habit of forming that seems to be difficult for some reason. However, when it comes to growing and delighting specifically through studying, memorizing, and meditating on the Word of God, let me throw out this challenge. We are far too dependent on our pastors to feed us. Yes, they should feed us, and they need to feed us. We need them to feed us, but they are not our sole source for nourishment. We have them eat the food of rigorous study, memorization, meditation, and expect them then to fully nourish us. We are taking for granted the very nourishment that God gives us in his word. To mature and grow, to be nourished, and to experience greater and greater delight in God, we need to feed ourselves solid food. A.W. Tozer, who if you've not read anything by him, the first book you should buy after this service is Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Get it, read it, talk about it. He says it this way, so sound Bible exposition, which is what we hear on a Sunday morning from Justin or others, is an imperative must in the church of the living God. Without it, no church can be a New Testament church in any strict meaning of the term. And let me pause and just say thank you, Justin. Thank you, Edward. Thank you for others who have consistently sought to do this faithfully and fruitfully. So thank you, guys. It is critical. And he goes on to say, but exposition must be or may be carried out in such a way as to leave the hearers, us, devoid of any true spiritual nourishment, whatever. And that's frightening to think of. For it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. And unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard. In other words, you're not going to be any better showing up on Sunday morning, listening and walking away and leaving it at that. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God that they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, that they may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. That is what God gives us through his word. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you're studying deeply for hours every day, but it does mean that there needs to be a consistent pattern, that diligent study in the word. When I was younger, before marriage, before kids, because I will say when you have kids, your patterns and habits need to shift and change for a good reason, but I would still have my devotional times each morning during the week, and that would be, I don't know, a few Readings in the Word, praying, thinking, pondering, and, and memorizing. But then Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings, I use that time to then feast, to pick up a study, to study it myself independently so I could take in and get nourished that deep levels, level of studying and memorizing the Word. So do that. It is critically important. Now let me give one caveat because there are seasons of life that we walk through where all we can do is get out of bed. We are blessed to get out of bed, honestly. There have been suffering and difficulty times in my life when I emotionally 
could not even just walk up the stairs, let alone open the word for any disciplined and difficult study. God knows that. We heard about that last week. We read the footprints poem. He carries us. He walks with us. And so understand his grace in that. But don't make that the pattern continually throughout the rest of your life. Seek to be consistent in some level of relationship, of devotion with God. And then allow him to walk you through that time and to cause you to flourish. And we'll get to the tree analogy in just a minute. But cause you to flourish so that as that time opens up, you're able to take it in and just delight in him. Now, when we study, the goal is to understand the original meaning of the text so that it can be rightly responded to and applied. That's difficult, and that's hard for us to do because we're segregated and separated by generations, by language, by culture. But it did have, it does have, I say it did have, it does have an original, a, a purposeful and singular meaning of that letter to the audience. So we need to dig in to discover what that is. To do this, resources are boundless. We've got background tools, language tools, commentaries. We've got prepared studies from reputable, excuse me, reputable sources like Nine Marks has some really good ones. Tim Keller has some really good ones. As you pursue those resources, try to make sure they teach you the method of studying, not just the content of studying. We've got a book uh, we're going to hand out in a little bit called One-on-One -on -one Bible Reading. This is one that will give you guys some good tools to study with. Get a companion resource. So as you read through the Bible, um, you can get a companion resource like this, What the Bible is All About by Henrietta Mears. Solid Christian godly woman that teaches the Word of God. Good resources. You walk through the Word. What does it mean? How do I understand it? Things like that. Very, very good. Um, let's see here. What else have I got in my little treasure trove? So other resources... Obviously, this is A.W. Tozer, Pursuit of God, get that one. Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, I think Man School went through. They had some really good content on how to learn to study your Bible. So take these, dig into these, and figure out how to do it. I've got a little bit of a study that I've put together. Melanie and I have walked through for different times of a process and a method, so I can also share that with you. Justin, Edward, and Tom can point you to some great resources, and you don't need a seminary degree. That's the point. You don't need this deep well of knowledge that you've been trained in to pull from. It's there and it's ready for you to jump in where you're at. What you need is time, desire, and help. So make time. Ask God for the desire and ask God and others to help you. What if, instead of depending on our pastors for solid food as our only source of solid food, we ask them to come alongside us as a resource so we can learn to feed ourselves and grow to maturity. Like, I bet you they would just cheer to say, have someone come up and say, hey, can you really teach me how to study the word? I really want to know. Yeah, see, Edward's already into it. Now, don't all hundred go to him at the same time, or he might send you to somebody else within this church. But wouldn't that be an awesome picture of growth? And the goal in Bible study is not self-dependence, as in I can do this all alone by myself, but it's generational fruitfulness. So that as you learn and you grow and your knowledge and delight of God and meditating on his word, then you generationally pass that on to others, spiritually and in your families. John Piper describes it this way the, as a furnace. The fuel of worship is the truth of God or the word of God. The fire that makes the fuel burn white hot is the quickening of the Holy Spirit. The furnace made alive and warm by the flame of truth 
is our renewed spirit and the resulting heat of our affections is powerful worship, pushing its way out in confessions, in longings, acclamations, tears, songs, shouts, bowed heads, lifted hands, and obedient lives. We want that. The new heart in us wants that. The greater the fuel source, the greater the fire. This is the hunger of our new hearts. So let me pause and ask a question. How do you view your Bible? Is it important? Is it primary? Is it preeminent in your pursuit of God? Do you view it as an instruction manual or just another book to read? I promise you it is. We gain instruction from it. It is so much more. Do we take it for granted? I think around our home we have I don't know, 20, 25 copies of different versions of the Bible scattered all over, plus the electronic versions. Do we not realize the importance of the word? That the Bibles that you guys have in your hands and on your devices cost men and women to be imprisoned and killed to get the Bible in a language that you and I can understand. It's serious in its importance. So in summary, this first contrast reveals that blessedness is not about following commands or keeping on a certain path. Blessedness is about a transformed heart and affection for God and his word. And that's contrast one. That's the first two verses. <laughs> we might have time. I have a feeling other people in this <laughs> building with us may not have time. Um, so contrast number two. The result of what Nan does, earthly and heavenly. We see this in verses 3 and 4. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. Amen? The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So some observations we're going to see in this fruitful tree. First is planted by streams of water. A tree has to have water to thrive. It will wilt and die without it. Those who have a water source mature and endure. And notice that the verb planted is its passive voice. In other words, God takes you and plants you where you're going to get the nourishment that you need to grow and mature in delight. However, what planted by the water does not mean is that the water source on the surface is ever present. And we see around here, we see seasonal periods of time. They had that in the Middle East culture, which is what the original culture was that this letter came from. However, the Middle East also has a rainy season and a dry season. During dry or difficult seasons, the trees dig deeper into the soil. When I say rainy and dry, I mean like it rains three months out of the year, and then they don't get a drop for nine. It's not, I mean, we might have weeks of rain and weeks of dry, but they're getting months of rain, they're dumped on, and then dry. During these dry and difficult seasons, the trees dig deeper into the soil to find submerged resources of water and nutrients. The result is that you have a deeply rooted system that's enduring, maturing, and resilient, perennially fruitful, and that the leaves don't wither in non-seasonal, unnatural effects. Because the wither here is not what we see when we see leaves fade, and they fall, and the tree comes back and blossoms the next year. That's that natural cycle of the seasons. What this is talking about is unnatural withering and dying. Think of the plant, the, the naive or unsmart husband that goes to the store, gets a plant, a potted plant, to bring home to his wife, thinking this is going to be beautiful. It was beautiful in the store. It's going to be beautiful at home. And then what happens, what he doesn't realize, 
is that the store got plenty of water. At home, not necessarily. Not that we've ever experienced that. But I usually bring my wife home cut flowers that are beautiful in their season, which is about three days. So there's not an expectation of more. So that's what he's getting at with withering. Now, what does he mean by all prospers? Because if we're honest, sometimes when we're pursuing delight in God, it is not prosperous. It doesn't feel prosperous. We experience suffering, pain, and difficulty. At times around us, we can see the wicked prosper like a magnificent, massive oak or poplar, while, extreme, while ex- externally, we seem to be weathering an extreme storm. For the wicked, they may be impressive on the outside, but on the inside, they are poor and rotting and dying. But you, as a Christian, regardless of the magnificence of your external life, have the divine source flowing through every fiber of your being. The raging storm cannot uproot a blessed and cared for saint by God. There is prosperity that is greater than our external circumstances. And the goal of that prosperity is it's tied to the fruitful tree analogy. Enduring fruitfulness for yourself and for others to the glory of God. While the blessed man is fruitful and prosperous, the blessedness of the wicked is at best temporary on this earth and is not resolute at eternal judgment. So let me just, I'm not going to go into detail on this due to the uh, the interest of time, but let me read the wick. Well, I already did read verses four and five. Um, so let me talk about winnowing. So winnowing essentially is cutting off the plant of the wheat, dropping it on a very hard surface, and beating it like pow, pow, pow. Ouch. Uh, and the purpose of the beating is that they want to separate the kernel from the chaff or the wheat, so that that kernel, when they toss it into the air with a fork, that kernel falls, and they save and use that kernel. But then the chaff, the husk, and the straw blow away in the wind. And if they don't, they're gathered and they're burned because they have no use. This is the picture of the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers and their end result. In Matthew chapter 3, where John is talking to the religious leaders coming to him to be baptized, he says in there at the very end, he will baptize you with, with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's about to toss it all up, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's the fulfillment that we see in Psalm 1, 5. For those here this morning who do not choose God, do not follow him, do not pursue delight in him, God is not mocked. If you want fundamental independence from God, if that's what you delight in, he will allow you to have that. But learn from this psalm as a warning that this ultimately leads to eternal poverty and destruction. The wicked cannot remain because they have no weight. When Jesus tosses up that mixture, they are blown away like chaff. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, Whenever God chooses to cast him down from his highest state with the breath of his mouth. The wicked may prosper for a time, but the long-term and eternal result is emptiness and unquenchable fire. So in summary, the second contrast reveals those who delight in God are fruitful and prosperous now and in eternity. 
that those who turn from delight in God will wither and perish. And now we get to verse 6. This is where it starts to get good. I mean, verse 6, where we see the contrast number 3, what God does. It says, for or because the reason... The, the reason the, is because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God's activity. Now, as you study the Bible, which we talked about before, what's the most important rule when you're doing Bible study? Anybody, throw it out there. You know the answer already. You know the answer already. Somebody else. Context, yes. Context is the most important rule when you're looking at Bible study. So when we look at the term know in the original language here, it does not mean knowledge. It's not intending with this statement that God understands or comprehends the way of the blessed. What it does mean is that he cares for, he guards, he protects, he has your eye upon, he has his eye upon, he's watching over you. So it's an active verb with continuous action. The Lord is knowing you. This is the decisive contrast between those who eternally bless and those who eternally perish. Who is knowing them? This is the most profound contrast in the psalm. The Lord knows you. The Lord cares for you, guards you, protects you, and watches over you, and he is faithful in it. Like your refrigerator. You would not keep a refrigerator that was working 99% of the time because that 1% would ruin your food and you'd have to get a new refrigerator. I wouldn't like a refrigerator to do that. That's not 100%. A refrigerator that never fails, never which is unheard of in today's age, is a faithful refrigerator. God is faithful. Okay, that sounds really weird. (laughs) God is so much more than a faithful refrigerator, people. (laughs) But he is faithful. He is faithful. He fulfills his condition on his promise because he brings about the truly and eternal, both now and eternally blessedness. So application, what does this mean for our lives? Because he knows us, and like Edward said in the sermon last week, he is my shepherd. Number one, the blessedness of divine life is in us for our good. We can and you can walk with confidence through all that comes our way in life. We're in his ever-present, ever-caring hands that we may not always know or understand the turmoil around us. Our God is constant. My God is constant. Your God is constant. Secondly, the blessedness of the divine life in us is for the overflowing to the world, to the increase of thanksgiving, to the glory of God. In other words, it's not for us to keep to ourselves. It is to overflow to others. We can confidently pursue his commission for our lives and mission in the world, knowing that our lives are in his hands every breath, every breath. We can serve him and follow him, not out of guilt, not out of fear, but out of delight. A new affection that overflows its banks into heartfelt, whole life devotion and worship through mission. So do you know, just around the world right now, do you know that many peoples still have no written Bible in their language? The Bibles that we have available to us are awesome, and they're so needed. Yet there are many who do not have that. Do you know that many peoples around the world still have no access 
to a gospel witness. I use the term access. That's an important term. And I do want to introduce briefly this tribe in northern India called the Bihar. I was listening to a sermon this last week, and this pastor brought it up and introduced me to it. So now I want to introduce them to you. 100 million people in this tribe in the northern part of India, they live in about the size of Tennessee. So a third of the entire population of the U.S. compacted into the size of Tennessee. Extremely poor physically and extremely poor spiritually. So it's primarily Hindu. Best estimates are 0.1% Christian. And because of that poverty, 5,000 people die every day. If we work through that statistic, that means 4,995 people die every day in Bihar, India, to an eternal torment. 4,995 people. Not because they passed by churches. Not because they shrugged off conversations about God with their coworkers or their classmates. Not because they passed by Bibles on the bookshelves. Because they have little to no access to the Bible, to the gospel, and to a witness. So what are we to do? Translation, mission, even just opening up your door to your neighbors, who I guarantee you, if they do not know Christ, are lonely. 65% of them are on antidepressants. They're lonely. Open up your lives and your hearts and the gospel to them. So what are we to do? Bring the word and the witness to them. Support missionaries and local Christian churches to partner with them through our time, energy, skills, abilities, and finances. Go yourself to Bihar, India. So do we care about other people created in God's image that do not know this God who blesses, even that do not have access through the written word, the God that blesses? Even in our local communities, do we care for them? Do we care for the glory of God who makes us blessed as we follow him? In other words, if man is not the primary goal, the goal is the glory of God. Do we care about his glory to be spread so that all peoples can know him, that he has blessed us, he who has blessed us, tremendously. If we truly delight in him, we will. And like John Piper says in his book, Future Grace, when you know the truth about what happens to you after you die and you believe it, and you are satisfied with all that God will be for you in the ages to come, that truth makes you free indeed, free from the short, shallow, suicidal pleasures of sin and free for the sacrifices, and I would add stemming from delight, sacrifices stemming from delight of mission and ministry that cause people to give glory to our Father in heaven. Bless you. So let me ask again by some of these questions for myself and for you guys. What do I delight in? What do you delight in? To help diagnose some of that, ask those same questions. Where do I spend my time, my energy, my money? What motivates me to push beyond my comfortable reality? What am I willing to sacrifice for and push into? What do I give other things up for? And what do I pursue expecting to find happiness? So this week, spend some time alone in your Bible and meditation, asking God to help you answer questions like these. Now, what if I don't delight in the Lord? I find my answers to these questions to be other things. What do I do? Well, first, I promise you, if your heart posture is not there now, it will be someday, and it will be at repeated times throughout your life because of that heart battlefield that we talked about earlier. Remember that delight and desire to will motivates us to fight the battle of delight. 
Jesus, and also remember, Jesus develops the fruit of joy in your heart over time. And then follow the exhortation of Psalm 1. He tells us, he explains to us, he reveals to us how to find our blessedness in him. So to quote John Piper, pray for a new and holy taste buds on the tongue of your heart. Because without God opening the eyes of our heart, they are as dead as doornails. So pray and ask God to do it. Secondly, meditate on the word day and night. Have consistent daily devotional times in God's word. And then meditate, consider, ponder, prosper, not prosper, what am I thinking of? Picture, pray, there's this 3P analogy. Ponder, picture, pray, if you remember that. Ponder the word, picture the word in your mind, pray the word in response. Um, so ponder, picture, and pray, and meditate throughout the night and the day. And remember that delight equals obedience. A surefire way to shortcut your delight and your blessedness is by not being obedient to what he reveals in his word, what he wants you to walk through with. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't care to know the God described in this psalm at all, and you really don't even know if the Bible is trustworthy and believable, consider the decisive contrast of each separate path, and don't take it lightly. Explore your questions, dig in, seek to really understand, and include others in this room in that exploratory process. We would love to walk with you through that. And then simply ask God to help you see, whether you believe in him at this moment or not, to simply ask, Lord, if you're really there, help me to see what's really true. And that brings us to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to respond to the delight that God has given to us through Jesus and revealed in his word. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to remember that as we struggle and as we fight and that battlefield of our heart pulls one way and another way and we find ourselves failing and pursuing other things, that his death on the cross the mercy that we sang about this morning is ever present. It is not our performance that brings our delight. Oh, church, it is not our performance that brings our delight. It is our God that knows you, that is knowing you, that develops the delight in your heart for him. And we remember the pathway and the source of that every week when we take communion. Remember that Christ died on the cross, after three days, he rose again, is seated at the right hand of God, and he again will come to judge the earth. So if you're here this morning again and you just don't believe, I would encourage you to consider. What did you learn about delight this morning that you hadn't thought of before? What did you learn about this weird tree analogy or this weird way to process wheat that seemed to resonate and kick off and understand, yeah, I, I kind of get that now. Process through that for those who haven't trusted because the table that we're about to partake of is reserved for those who, who take it as a response and as a worship and a delight in their hearts that God has made us new. So I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray for us, there are going to be tables in the back and tables in the front. And please come and partake when you're ready. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, that goodness that then you ushered and brought us near through the cross. And that you've shown us, not only that you've shown us how to love and follow you and pursue the happiness and joy and delight that you offer to us through yourself, 
But Lord, you enable us. You know us. You care for us. You walk for us when we can't even walk for ourselves. Lord, when we can't hardly even get out of bed. Lord, you're there, nurturing, caring for, loving us so that we grow to a fruitful tree that bears generational fruitfulness for the good of others and the glory of God. Change us. Shape us. Stir our hearts and our affections. Mature us in the faith so that the God that loves us and the God that we love, that thankfulness would increase to the glory of God in Fairfax, Virginia, in the Washington, D.C. metro area and around the world. In Jesus' name.